everybody. This is Mina Malapetti of Amplify MD. Joining us today on another episode of the Seamless Connection podcast is Dr. Justin Barad of Oso VR. Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm just going to start with a quick background. So if you could introduce yourself to those in the audience that haven't met you yet, I'll let you uh, do a quick intro. Sure. Uh, nice to meet you, audience. Um, you know, I actually got my career started in video games. Uh, you know, growing up, I was very passionate about video games, especially how they were made. And I wanted to figure out how to make them myself. So I was kind of on my way to become a video game developer when I had a family member get ill. And honestly, I woke up one day and wondered, hey, maybe there's a way to use my passion for software and technology, not necessarily for entertainment, but to help people. So I ended up pursuing biomedical engineering with this strong, very strong desire to invent new healthcare technology. But I didn't know how to get started with invention. So I kind of was having a bit of a crisis towards the end of college and I was asking around for advice. And I was talking to a mentor and he told me something that sticks with me to this day. He said, Justin, if you want to invent something, you need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he thought a great way to understand medical problems was to be a doctor. So I took his advice very literally, and he helped me get into medical school at UCLA. Um, and then I stayed there to do my orthopedic surgery training. And that's really where I experienced firsthand what I think is one of the biggest problems in healthcare today, which is how we train and assess our healthcare professionals with procedures and surgery. So uh, I was actually able to combine my two life passions of video games and healthcare and start Oso VR, uh, the world's largest VR surgical training platform in October 2016. And I still practice as a pediatric orthopedic traumatologist on weekends at UCLA and Orthopedic Institute for Children. That's amazing. Um, I know there's a lot of young men and women in the audience um, or in the future audience, I guess, if their parents are listening, that uh, would love <laughs> to take that spin from video games to med school to something even more. So that's that's uh, uh, an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. In terms of uh, one of the themes at Seamless Connection is just kind of getting down to the personal nitty gritty of, of what brought you to this. So you mentioned you had a family member get sick, you know, um, for whatever you're willing to share, what, what inspired you, um, you know, what happened there, whatever, uh, you know, you were able to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think at that time, um, I didn't know a lot about medicine or what was going on necessarily, but I did, there was this general sense of frustration or things weren't going well. And, you know, I had a family member that was basically hospitalized for like a year and is doing fine now, honestly, but, you know, wasn't able to make it to graduation and important life events. And it seemed like they were in a lot of pain and, um, and everyone was scared. And I just, it, it affected me and my family so much that I wanted to be, you know, kind of like come in as a hero and be like, maybe I, I have these, these skills and this passion, maybe I could use that to solve these problems so that in the future, people wouldn't need to go through something like that. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like naive at the time and, and just very idealistic, but, um, ended up kind of starting to move down that path and, uh, you know, have not really deviated much since. That's amazing. How did you end up going to orthopedic surgery, um, as opposed to any of the bazillions of specialties and subspecialties out there these days? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And that's part of what our technology addresses is that it's hard to get an idea of what specialties are out there. And a lot of times when people end up going into a uh, you know, surgical subspecialty or something that is, you know, to, to the lay population, maybe a little obscure, typically they, they know someone or have had some sort of personal experience with the specialty. So, you know, if you look at most 
personal statements, and this is like just empirical sort of gestalt, like people who are applying to residency, most of it is like, I tore my ACL in high school or college. And I thought the orthopedic surgeon was so cool. And the surgery was like, so cool. I'm like, I want to do that. So that's like one of the most common. And second is like, I, I know an orthopedic surgeon or my family member is an orthopedic surgeon. And so for me, my, one of my best friends from college, her dad was, uh, ran UCLA's orthopedic trauma program. So, you know, he would always tell me, he's like, do you want to deal with sick people, Justin? Um, obviously we deal with sick people in orthopedics, but he was a, he is a very funny guy. So, you know, he took me under his wing and, you know, I got to shadow him in the OR a lot, but also for my background, it really lined up really nicely. Um, for one thing, my undergrad was in biomedical engineering and I also have a minor in mechanical. And so it was very cool to be able to apply things that I learned in college as an engineer to patients and, you know, understanding you know, stress and strain and the stiffness of these fixation constructs and how it would affect, uh, you know, fracture, micromotion and, and bone healing. Like, I was like, wow, this is cool. Like I can use what I spent so many years learning in painful nights in the library to actually help people once again. So um, that was really fun for me. I'm also... Uh, obviously very into technology and, and orthopedics has a lot of technology that is involved, whether it's like self-expanding uh, rods for limb lengthening, which is crazy, um, you know, navigation systems, a lot of power tools, which are so cool. Um, so, you know, and I also really like baking and working with my hands and kind of so kind of scratches that itch. Also, for me personally, I have like crippling ADD. So it's you do a lot of different things in orthopedics, like you're looking at pathology slides, you're interpreting x-rays, MRIs, CT scans, you're doing physical exams, you're doing surgery, you're prescribing medication. So you kind of get to do it all, uh, which is really fun. Um, I think culturally for me, like uh, I'm kind of, I don't know if you can tell, I'm like kind of like a goofy guy and like all over the place. And, you know, just don't take, I take what I do very seriously, but not too seriously. And I think that's kind of the, the vibe of orthopedic surgery is like, hey, like, what we do is serious work and we make people's lives better, but we can all enjoy doing that. It should be like a positive experience. And I think uh, a lot of people feel similarly. And then finally, I, went, I ended up going into pediatric orthopedics. So, um, you know, pediatric orthopedics is when I really got the first taste of like, of like real mission, like, you know, all, obviously all of healthcare is, is mission driven, but pediatrics, especially so. Um, and I was, I mean, I was always interested in peds and you know, the first surgery I ever did was this uh, limb lengthening, which I talked about, which yeah. I had only ever known from a movie called Gattaca and I thought it was science fiction, oh, but yeah. I guess it's a real thing. So I was like, wow, yeah. that's amazing. But I did have this <laughs> one experience. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's pretty wild. I did have this one experience where, you know, this kid came in from Liberia, I was like 16. Um, he had an untreated club foot. So he's like walking basically on his distal tibia is like disfigured and pain, very hard for him to move around. And we did a salvage procedure to sort of get his foot back under his tibia. He's kind of able to walk again. It's not a perfect procedure, but certainly it helped him. And I was coming into clinic and I kind of saw him out of the corner of my eye a few weeks later and I could hear him. He was grabbing his dad. He was like, dad, 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 that's the guy that made it so I could walk again. Um, little did I know, I was just like holding a retractor during the surgery. Like I didn't do anything, but I, like, I was like, so like moved and just like very emotional. I'm like, wow, it's like, I want to continue to have that kind of impact in people's lives. And you know, so many in, in children, you know, they have so many years ahead that the, the total impact you can have and sort of the way you can change their life trajectory is, is wild. Um, so, um, 
you know, I, I decided I would, I would do pediatric orthopedics and uh, haven't regretted that for a second. That's amazing. And how did kind of Oso VR come about, right? And and I've seen, I mean, I've, I've put it on myself. I've seen it myself and in, in action. And obviously I'm not a surgeon, so I probably don't, I'm not your target audience at all. But um, my brother's a surgeon. We have a ton of doctors on staff that uh, that have, you know, seen the potential for it. So I'd love to understand from you. Did you see a lack of it that you were trying to meet when you created Oso? Was it something that you were just gathering stuff and you realized there was a, a market need for it? Like, how did that come about? No, I mean, I was experiencing the need firsthand. Um, you know, I'd be in surgeries. <clears throat> I, I trained at some incredible programs, but even there, people would be like, hey, can you just run to the computer real quick and effectively ask me to Google what to do? You know, we haven't done this surgery before, or we haven't done this in a while, um, or we're just like stuck. Um, so th that happened frequently enough that I was like, hey, like what's going on here? And I really kind of boil it down to like four kind of core dynamics that I was seeing. The, the first is there's just, there's too much to learn. So if you think about it, every every month, there's some new procedure coming out, new technology. And so we're being spread more and more thin. It's like we've gone from French laundry to cheesecake factory. You can't do everything well. I always tell a story one day we were called to drive to the zoo to operate on a gorilla, which clearly we had no experience with. And it feels like more and more we're dealing with gorilla-like situations on almost a daily basis. The, the second part of the problem that I don't think people realize is that surgery is getting a lot more complicated. So these newer technologies, robotics, minimally invasive techniques, patient-specific implants, they're harder to learn how to use. They're, they're exciting and typically higher value, but it's just harder to learn. So learning curves have gone from maybe like 10 to 20 to more like 50 to 100 cases to reach a basic level of proficiency. The third part of the problem is we don't really have a way to assess surgical skill right now in healthcare, which is kind of crazy. So the only time I was really assessed for my surgical skill is asked to play the board game operation and remove a few plastic pieces without buzzing, which I did. And I'm proud of that, but that's kind of state of the art. And so, you know, it's, we're flying blind a bit and you hear stories like Dr. Death, which is an extreme example. Like obviously most surgeons are safe. It works most of the time, but you can run into a situation like that because there's really no technical checkpoint. Um, and then finally, and this is like an even bigger issue today is uh, team variability and, and training as a team. Surgery used to be like, you came in as a surgeon, you just did everything because it, it was simple, little, um, you could do it all yourself. But now it's, it's a much more complex, coordinated activity that involves the whole team, but you're working with a different team every single day. And so, especially now with the staffing crisis, you get a lot of travelers coming in, fresh grads, you're working with people never worked with you, never done the surgery, maybe they've never done any surgery. And so you're having to get them up to speed on these highly complex procedures where they have a meaningful role, um, while also like doing your own job. So it's that that is extremely stressful and difficult. So I was seeing all this firsthand. And I got involved in virtual reality very early because my gaming background just I thought it was cool. And the second I tried a headset on I was in a villa in Tuscany, I got my hands in there I was kind of picking up some chairs and books. I'm like, Oh, my God, like this is going to solve this problem a hundred percent. You could use it anytime, anywhere, train on any procedure. You can get objective assessment and you can train a team or coach people remotely. So I was convinced. I'm like, hey, this is a hundred percent gonna work. And you know, I'd be like, hey, check this out. Like, this is amazing. This is really gonna help us out. And people are like, Have you lost your mind? You train surgeons with a video game? It's like, get back to work. You know, this is this is not helpful. Um, and so Eventually, I just, I'm like, I think I'm just going to have to do this by myself. So, you know, built the first prototype myself, which looked horrible. Um, and then I met my co-founder on the internet and I paid him with my bar mitzvah savings and 
you know, we created this demo, which won an award. And, you know, we got, we were able to, I mean, just like investors back then, if you had VR in the name of your company would just like give you money. It was like really wild. And so I was doing this program at Stanford. I had $400,000 in the bank and had this opportunity to kind of go full time and see where this went, um, which was really crazy at the time because, you know, I was like just on that track to be a full-time academic surgeon. And, um, you know, in that moment, this felt way bigger than me. Um, not so much that this was like a great opportunity for me personally, but that at some point I would need surgery. My family or my friends would need surgery. And I just want to make sure that they had the best result possible. And I just felt like someone had to try and do something. And, you know, 99% chance most startups don't work. And I knew that, but I wanted to sort of, to try, at least I could have like looked back on my life and not had any regrets. So, uh, I took a pretty big career risk and, uh, you know, my family and friends were extremely worried for quite some time, but uh, it seems <laughs> to be going okay. No, that's great. And, and, and that's hundred percent true. I, I've so a good friend who since passed did say, you know, on your deathbed, what you regret is what you didn't do, not what you did do. So no, I think that's great. Um, for for those of us that haven't um, seen it or experienced it live, can you walk us through kind of just a, a use use of of Oso VR? Um, because one thing I am firm and passionate believer in is just what you said, which is um, you go to the doctor that has the most experience, right? When you're looking for a surgeon, like you said, you're looking for the one that has a thousand repetitions on that particular case or that particular situation, not one that has ten, right? And so exactly what you're doing, which is giving that them that repetition, that practice, that muscle memory, that kind of brain memory of what they need to do when they need to do what, what to look for. Right. Um, so can you walk us through kind of how that works? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's, we use off the shelf VR technology. So, you know, the Oculus quest or the Oculus, uh, uh, quest two or quest pro. So I have here, this is the meta quest pro. Uh, this is sort of like the newest, newest and greatest headset out there. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, this headset is a little pricey, but the Quest 2 is like $350 right now, I believe. Um, you know, and you just you put this on your head, you have this controller in your hand, um, and this provides cutaneous haptic feedback and also tracks your hands very accurately. You can also not use controllers and just use your hands at the expense of slightly less precise tracking and, and the lack of haptics, but that's an option as well. Um, and then you're fully immersed in a virtual operating room. You can practice any procedure end to end, you can kind of go in a guided mode or more of an assessment mode where it's assessing your knowledge or you're doing everything accurately. Um, and then you get analytics on how you did there, or you can bring in a remote coach or an expert from, I was just in Brazil and I had people from Philadelphia coming in to help me train people. Um, so you can do it from anywhere in the world, or, you know, you can practice with your team. So you could show up, you know, 20 minutes before the surgery, bring everyone into VR, run through it a few times and then do the real thing. Um, so it's, you can, you know, I'll, I'll use this in my car. So I don't recommend that, but, you know, connect to my mobile hotspot and just jump in, uh, train people halfway around the world. So it's pretty wild. And I think, you know, I agree with you that I always kind of joke, like when you fly on a plane, do you know the name of your pilot? Like, have you looked your pilot up on their health grade scores or ask your grandma how their experience was with this pilot? No, you don't do that because you know, it's going to be pretty much the same result every single time. But we do do those things in healthcare and it's for a variety of reasons, but part of it is that we know there's a lot of variability and we know that variability has to do with who's doing the procedure. And my dream is that we can at least provide some sort of like proficiency threshold of like, Hey, I know it's going to be an excellent result no matter what. 
uh, because they've done this consistent training and checkpoint to make sure that everyone in the room knows what they're doing, um, which is just, it's not that people don't want to be doing that right now. They just don't have a way to. As a board certified surgeon, are there minimum qualification criteria to renew every, you know, so often in terms of we have to have had X number of procedures for, for this specialty or this designation or no? It really depends on the specialty. They all work a little differently. Um, but typically, once you're certified that initial time where you have to kind of collect a typically a certain number of cases or you have to be have been operating continuously for a certain amount of time. Um, not really. And then, you know, in, in the your oral boards, they're they're asking you about a few cases, like, you know, they'll ask you about like three or four surgeries that you did and be like, why did you do this? Why did you do that? But that's basically it. Um, so it's it's not very comprehensive um, and certainly quite subjective. Yep. If you were going in for surgery yourself for something you obviously can't do in yourself and you didn't have a friend already that you knew, what are you looking for in your surgeon and in your um, in your uh, surgery group? Well, I'm <laughs> I mean, I, I normally and every doctor does this. It's like you have this network. And so you're like, oh, hey, I need this. Like, who's the best person to do that? Have you operated with them? Like you're looking for people who have firsthand knowledge of like how they are in the operating room, um, because most most people generally do well from surgery, um, but it's like, it's only really when you see people operate that you can kind of like, and you need to know what you're looking at as well, uh, which is like non-trivial. So, uh, you know, doctors tend to be high anxiety and type A and kind of do a lot of research whenever they or a loved one uh, needs to see someone. That being said, if, you know, this hypothetical situation where I didn't have access to that network and that kind of information, you know, I probably... I mean, on some level, you want to know where someone trained. I think, you know, how I, I think it's just helpful because you kind of know the general kind of people or you know the kind of product that they produce. But I, I would say that, like, sometimes the more prestigious places actually don't produce the best surgeons from a technical standpoint, because sometimes those like busier county hospitals, you're getting way more reps in um, because they just need the the help. So it's kind of counterintuitive. Um so, you know, probably where they trained. Um, and then, you know, the classic is like, how many of these do you do a year? But like really zeroing in on like how many anterior total hips with the Depew Synthes collared stem with navigation do you do a year? You know, it's like not just hips because it's like that's what when people ask that we often be like, oh, well, like, you know, if someone asked me how many hips I've done, they're like, oh, I've done like 100. But it's like, you know, how many robotic hips have I done like? zero, you know, or like how many collared stems have I done? It's like, oh, not a lot, actually. So it's just, uh, there's a lot less transferability than I surgeons or the public realize, like, you know, there's one study in Australia that found that for fully trained surgeons who are switching from a posterior to anterior total hip, it takes 50 to 100 cases to reach proficiency, even when you're fully trained. So it's really important to understand not just like the category, how many times you've done it, but like this specific surgery. I'd also be curious what their average OR time is. Um, that's usually, you know, it's being fast sometimes can be bad, but generally that is a good marker of someone who is moving through at a pretty good pace. I'd probably also like pull aside like the circulator or like, um, you know, the surgical tech be like, Hey, what, you know, what's going on? Should I cancel this? Should I, <laughs> should I just like leave? Should I just eat a slice of pizza right now and call it off? <laughs> 
turn around and walk out that door. Uh, I was talking to Josh the other day and he mentioned um, how you can actually now train a physician completely on a brand new type of surgery on OSO um, from something they really haven't done before and get really up to speed. And, and I know you guys have done a lot of work on capturing the data with it, right? So how how does it compare or how quickly can OSO help um, surgeons get up to speed on a brand new procedure? As you mentioned, there's new new procedures, new technology coming out all the time. So this would be huge in terms of not just expanding or refining what you already know, but taking that to the next level and say, hey, this surgery that is brand new and I it wasn't even around when I was getting trained, now I can do this having now done 50, 100, whatever reps uh, virtually. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um... That is one of like, you know, refreshing yourself on a procedure you already know how to do is one of the great use cases, but it's really learning new procedures, especially these emerging technologies where the technology really shines. Um, and it's not always meant to completely replace hands-on training. It's more to provide sort of those first, you know, 40, 45 reps so that if you do do a cadaver, you do end up operating on a patient, you were like, refining your knowledge and not just like working your way up that early, very dangerous learning curve. Um, and so, you know, the data that we have where we're commonly, most studies are in a lab setting, like comparing traditional training to um, training with OSOVR to a set level of proficiency, which we can measure. So in one study published in journal surgical education, performance went up by 10 points or 230%. Um, and that was published in the Journal of Surgical Education. Um, I'm sorry, what do and, points mean in that situation? And the, the points are is a scale called OSATS, which is a surgical assessment system. It's uh, called the Objective Structured Assessment uh, of Technical Skills. Um, and then in another study published in one of the top three orthopedic journals, they found that the ability to perform surgery without needing supervision went from 25% to 78% when using OSOVR. And we have about seven published studies at this point showing that's highly effective, not just that, that it takes less time to train in VR, like you were saying, compared to traditional training. Um, and there's this idea of the transfer efficiency ratio. So training in VR is more efficient than something like, say, reading a book um, or um, watching a video. I know one of the first places you started with was in residency and training programs and then expanding out to to hospitals. How is that, um, you know, how do you visualize that as Kind of your ideal progression for for osovr and for the, you know your your specialty just in general in terms of how can you maximize the usage across not just from a business perspective but from a training and outcomes perspective right well i think what, what's been interesting about this journey is really the need initially was much more in the group of early career surgeons and proceduralists so these are people who just completed their formal training they're going out and practice and they're realizing, oh my God, I have to figure out what surgeries I'm going to offer my patients and I'm going to have to learn how to do them. And most of them I haven't even seen or heard of before in my training. So it's like, it's pretty wild and it's very stressful. And the, that training is not provided by the hospital system that they work at. It's provided by the medical device industry, by Johnson & Johnson, Stryker, Medtronic, et cetera. And so what we found is that and identified early on as a need to have use case for technology would be, hey, we want to work with the medical device industry for those early career proceduralists and surgeons to learn these new emerging procedures, both to see what's out there very quickly and then work their way up the learning curve so they can adopt them safely with their patients. Um, so when you're doing this, it's like you're opening a new restaurant, right? You got to like figure out what you want to put on the menu and then you got to learn how to make those dishes. And so that's where we got a lot of our early growth. 
Um, and then what we were able to do is once we kind of got really good at, you know, building out the platform and the VR content, um, we could turn towards residents and academic medical centers, which needed sort of like a different kind of experience and start to build out off the shelf curriculums for them. Um, so we're now really starting to push that. And I think we have some announcements soon about some new kind of products we're offering for residency programs. We work with about 15-ish residency programs currently to build that out. And the goal there is not only to you know, provide education residents and really create a more consistent I, as a product out of residency because it is quite random. And what I'd love to see one day is shifting from a time-based education model to a competency-based education model, right? It's like, I'm, I was in residency for five years, but maybe I needed longer. Maybe I could have gotten out faster, but it's just, you're just there for a set period of time. And there's some data out of Canada that shows that you could almost shave like a year off if you implement these competency-based systems. And just the training is taking way too long. Um, and med school could be shorter as well. It's a whole other conversation. Um, and then ultimately what we'd like to see is that this becomes a standard um, that, you know, board certification societies, professional societies advocate for that, hey, not only do we need to do well on multiple choice exams, but we need to be technically safe with our hands for the procedures that we know that we're going to be doing frequently with patients. And right now there's, there's none of that. Um, and I think every surgeon's had the experience where there are some people who are like coming into residency or finishing up residency. And you just, you know, that it's, they're probably just not going to be as safe uh, or as, as, as good as other surgeons, just because of how their, their, their brain is wired and, and the connection to their hands and the ability to think 3d spatially, but we don't really have a way to look at that right now. And so we're really just looking at, um, you know, how well people are liked during their rotations, um, which is, you know, it, it, the fact of the matter is that you're just, it's, it's like flying a plane, you know, it's, it's a very highly technically complex task and th there needs to be some sort of either evaluation or insurance that that technical ability is, is safe and proficient. The, is OSAVR planning to offer certification sometime in the future state? I mean, I, I think you have to be very careful about that. Um, you know, surgeons, it's, it's very hard to get to where we, we are and to go through the training. And we're very sensitive to being evaluated. And there, cause there's a lot of nuance and subtleties because some of the best surgeons have some of the worst outcomes because the sickest patients are going to them or they're getting the hardest cases. And you have some surgeons who aren't so good and they're having great outcomes because they're just hitting softballs, you know, or operating on people that don't need surgery. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but you know, I, I don't like to think about it so much as certification, but just sort of like reinforcement that you have done something to demonstrate to your patients, to your colleagues, to your supervisors, that you have some minimum threshold of safety that you, you've demonstrated. Um, and it's not, you know, you're not giving yourself like a grade, like, Hey, I'm an A surgeon, I'm a B surgeon. It's like, Hey, I've completed this assessment. I've passed all the milestones that are necessary to sort of demonstrate competence. Um, so um, I guess, yes, but just, you know, with a lot of nuance. Right. No, and that makes complete sense with, with all those nuances and more about like, I've done a hundred on this, as you said, there's this Dupuis or this Smith and nephew or this, what have you device um, as it goes in. So that, that completely makes sense. Um, one thing from our perspective, we work with a lot of community hospitals, um, a lot of rural hospitals, 
they tend to have a general surgeon, right? They're not necessarily um, having a lot of specialties, especially in the surgical suite. You might have one, maybe two ORs, um, and the surgeon's doing everything, right? Or, or almost everything except, except what they're transferring out. So for these kinds of locations, I could see this being a huge benefit. Is this an area that you have already explored or you're planning to explore? Because um, I can already, you know, think off the top of my head where they've had conversations with the surgeons. We're like, well, I wish I could do this. I'm just not comfortable, right? And it sounds like this would definitely help in, in situations like that. No, I mean, I think that's, you know, a lot of people join OSO and a big part of our mission is, you know, democratizing access to surgical training and improving patient outcomes for everyone everywhere. And, you know, a big part of that is there, there is this sort of divide that we know between low volume and high volume hospitals and also areas of the world like low and middle income countries um, where it's not that once again, that they don't have excellent staff um, who are knowledgeable, but they just don't have access to the same kind of training. Um, and, in the case of sort of rural or more community hospitals, it, it is a volume issue. And, you know, I saw this myself, I did some locums work in those early days of, of OSO and had the opportunity to work at some, you know, smaller hospitals, which is amazing. Uh, but you definitely saw that it's just, when you're doing five total knees a year, it's just, just gonna be different. Um, and so we are starting to work with some of these more community rural hospitals and areas um, to, Kind of provide level the playing field so to speak and you know, get those reps in so you know if you're doing five knees a year well you can refresh yourself beforehand real quick and kind of get back to where you need to be so you can have a pretty smooth result um so we're definitely seeing some pretty promising data from in the or in terms of or time smoothness of the case um even patient outcomes a lot of it is anecdotal and empirical at this point but that's where we really want to do a lot of our research is understanding how does this tie to intraoperative metrics and then eventually patient outcomes, which is the holy grail. But, you know, I, I truly believe with this technology and other technologies like navigation robotics, you know, we can make surgical care relatively equitable between these tertiary care high volume centers and, and more local um, sort of community low volume areas and something that I'm incredibly excited and passionate about. That's amazing. Um, and then what, I know we're coming up on the end of time, but I did want to ask you about video games. If that's still a passion of yours, if that's still something you have time for in, in any case. Um, I know my kids are, uh, they love Zelda and the new Zelda is coming out next week. So Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So I wanted to see one, do you have time? And then two, what are you playing these days? Um, I don't have a lot of time and I'm trying not to play things because I get real <laughs> into them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I played the first Zelda Breath of the Wild. It's like amazing. Um, yeah. Probably try and avoid the second one as long as possible, just so you know. <laughs> get some get sleep. Sucked in. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I I play like s some sort of obscure games sometimes. Like I'm an engineer, and I like games that are like more like construction and things like that. So there's a game called Terraria. It's been around for a while. I, I just started playing like Oxygen Not Included again. So pretty random games, I'd say. But uh, I. I Try because I'll I'll just get sucked in, and so you know I I'll try and play just sort of like the latest and greatest a little bit, just so I know kind of what's popular right now in terms of user interface and kind of design, um, and just so I can still be savvy about games because a lot of people at our company are game developers, and it's important to be able to just sort of chat with them and understand what's going on. Um, but generally, yeah, I'm trying to trying to whittle <laughs> it down a little bit. It's been so from a founder perspective, how do you get re-energize yourself if it's not video games? Um, if it's not taking that time away? Um yeah, playing piano and making pizza, really. 
um, and then sleeping when I can (laughs) and exercise. Uh, But yeah, I think it's important to have passions outside of work and not let it dominate your life. What's your favorite type of pizza? And I'll close with that. (laughs) Um, Probably right now I'm really into this uh, sort of hot honey, spicy pepperoni. Uh Um, Do you do it with the cornmeal crust with with the honey dipping at the end? Uh, well, I, I, I do use a little like semolina flour, uh, but yeah. um, I, I save the, the cornmeal for my sh- deep dish Chicago style pizza. Oh, fancy. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Well, when you come back up here to Stanford in the Bay Area, please let me know. But otherwise, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Uh, love the show. And it's a privilege to be on. Thank you.